we weren't certain whether or not uh, John Feather would be requiring slides. As it happens, he does not require slides. So your amphitheater-like arrangement uh, is going to cause no one to get uh, what is the sideways keystone effect called? <laughs> Whatever that is. Uh, however, all of you are veterans of Harkness Theater, and I need hardly bore you with what it looks like to see slides from a 180-degree side angle. We enter the spring season of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, and those of you, which is most of you here, who are Friends of the Press know what the schedule is for the rest of March and April. Am I right in thinking that you've just received something? Yeah. yeah. Those of you who haven't, I'm sure will be. But to remind those who have not read it yet, next Monday at 6 o'clock, our speaker, uh, who's in the back of the room at the moment, Anthony Keynes from Trinity College Dublin, will be speaking on Preservation Medieval Manuscripts and Traveling Exhibitions. That's Monday, 6 o'clock, March 30. On Tuesday, April 7th, at 6 o'clock, Gerald Gottlieb, the curator of early children's books at the Pierpont Morgan Library, will be speaking on the place of older children's books and chapbooks in research library collections. On Wednesday, April 15, Catherine Kais Lieb, the editor of American Book Prices Current, will be talking about Utopia and Bam Bam, Utopia and Bam Bam being two of the databases which American Book Prices Current have mounted, and we will have the databases here, and you will all be able to play with them if you've never manipulated machine-readable data in front of a cathode ray tube terminal. This is your big free chance. That's Wednesday, April 15 at 6 o'clock. On Monday, April 20th at 6 o'clock, our speaker will be James Mosley, the librarian of the St. Bride Printing Library in London, who will be speaking on the Monotype Corporation and the historical revival business, 1912-39. And then finally, for the spring season, on Monday the 27th, of April at 6 o'clock, again in this room, R.J. Fulford, Robert Fulford, who is Keeper of Printed Books at the British Library, will be speaking on the origin, uh, creation, growth, and development of the British Library, a, an origin, growth, and development which he was instrumental in, uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So that's Monday the 30th, Tuesday the 7th, Wednesday the 15th, Monday the 20th, and Monday the 27th, if I've done it all right. Our speaker this evening is John Feather, who is, in many respects, at the library school in England, which most nearly resembles the Columbia University School of Library Service in its interest in uh, the preparation of research librarians and in research librarianship, although the terms are not always comfortable back and forth between the two countries. And uh, 
his topic for this evening is the future of the past, why rare books matter. And here's Mr. John Feather. Thank you, John. As Terry has just said, um, I teach a course or a series of courses which I suspect in content and intention are not unlike the ones which he teaches here at Columbia. Before that, if you'll permit me a few moments of autobiography, um, I worked in what was then called Special Collections at the Bodleian, and I was there for some six or seven years. So, um, having spent some time actually working at being a rare books librarian, I found myself in a situation where I actually had to think about being a rare books librarian so I could tell other people what it was like and how to do it, insofar as that's possible at all. And what I propose to offer you this evening is really no more than a few random meditations, if you like, with a rather pompous title, on what rare book libraries and their custodians are doing, why they're important, how one can justify their continued existence and what's much more important, their development, which is to say how you can justify getting money for them. Um, and finally, but certainly not the least important, how um, we ought to be training the people who are going to work in them. Because it's the people who are in charge of our rare book libraries now and in the future who really represent the future of the past. These are the people whose decisions, whose skills, whose knowledge are going to determine whether or not our great libraries and our lesser ones will continue to perform the role in academic research which they've performed in the past or whether that role is going to change. Traditionally, the rare book librarian has been seen as a curator, as one who is in charge of an entity rather than an organism, of something which is rather than something which develops. His job is to look after, to transmit, and you, if you read what, for want of a better word, one has to call the literature of the subject, all over the place you will find the idea of the transmission of knowledge, the transmission of culture. It's a role which traditionally, um, put in those terms, is essentially passive. And I will argue later that passivity is inadequate. But I want to start, um, since um, my experience of the practice of rare book librarianship is entirely British, by just saying a little bit about the kinds of libraries we have in the United Kingdom which contain rare books, and what is perhaps important for understanding the background of some of what I'm saying, how they are funded. Now, funding is one of the great and fundamental differences between British and American libraries. Our library system in the United Kingdom, public and university, is, for all practical purposes, entirely publicly funded. We do not have private universities. Um, some universities, some libraries within universities have endowments, but the endowments are minute in terms of total expenditure. Um, libraries are entirely dependent, in effect, 
on local and central government finance and hence are continuously susceptible to a degree of political pressure. Now clearly that is very relevant at the present when we in Britain are going through a similar exercise to the one which you are experiencing of cutbacks in public expenditure on a very wide scale. Um, in the happy days of the late 1960s, um, when Britain believed that it was still wealthy and that within a few years oil would be flowing down the streets and we should be a sort of Abu Dhabi of the North Sea, there were various um, investigations into the future of our library service. Two of these, I think, were of the utmost importance for rare books. One was the Parry Report, which um, was a report essentially on the role of the university libraries. And the Parry Report emphasized continuously the importance of the university library as a research institution. That it's, although of course it was serving undergraduates, its primary long-term function was for research. And Parry saw in this a central role for the rare book archive manuscript collection. The Atkinson Report took a rather different line. The Atkinson Report invented something which, according to taste, is known as the Solid State Library, um, or the Self-Renewing Library, or the Self-Destructive Library. Um, the idea being that every university had a library of optimum size, and when it reached that size in terms of number of volumes, no new volumes were to be added until old ones had been discarded, and that the um, process of selection for discard should relate to use. Now, the implications of that for rare books were clearly quite horrifying. Fortunately, no university has yet actually managed to reach the Atkinson norms, so the self-renewing principle has never really come into operation. Um, let me just say a little bit more about the, the funding. The Atkinson report, in fact, was produced by a body called the University Grants Commission which is responsible for the channeling of central government funds into the universities. The theory of the way in which it works is that the UGC hands over to a university a given sum of money each year, and the university may then do with it as it wishes. Hence, there is no political pressure on academics. Um, in practice, of course, the UGC has a very substantial hidden power. For example, it's been decided that there are too many departments of Russian. Um, it's perfectly true there are too many departments of Russian because, again, I suspect, as in the States, an awful lot of them were started in the 50s and 60s, and there is now a, a gross overproduction of graduates. Um, the UGC cannot tell universities to close departments down. What it can do is withdraw the um, funding equivalent to the cost of running a particular department. Of course, it's nothing to do with the fact that that's the department they want to get rid of. Um, it's perhaps a gentle hint in that direction, but it leaves the university with the option of cutting back across the board or cutting out one particular area of its activities. So the UGC has very substantial potential power, which it can, if it chooses, exercise. The university libraries are um, our only research libraries for all practical purposes. We do not have the equivalent of the independent research library. 
we, d we haven't got a Folger, a Huntington, a Huntington, a Lilly. Um, the equivalent collections to those are embedded in the university libraries, and that again is a very important point, an important difference, which I'll come back to in a moment when I talk about the development of collections. Within the public library system, um, one certainly and two possibly public libraries have research collections which in scope and intention, although not in size, are comparable with the great public library collections in this country. Uh, those are Birmingham and the city of Westminster. But most public libraries do not have and do, would not wish to have um, rare book collections except in one very particular area, and that is the area of local studies and particularly local history. And those collections, although many of them are small and an appalling number of them neglected, are very important. Um, a few years ago, I was working on the provincial book trade in the 18th century, and I was looking for many um, provincially printed books, which I simply could not find in the Bodleian or the British Library or Cambridge or Manchester or any of the obvious universities. Time and again, the local public library in the place where the book was printed turned up the book. Um, the 18th century STC obviously is going to reveal an awful lot of this material. What I think we're increasingly aware of is that it is there, but that it's there in an institution which exists primarily for some quite different purpose, which is primarily a public lending and reference library, which has neither the inclination nor the facilities, nor quite often the expertise to look after those books properly and to make them properly available to potential users. Um, in terms of private institutions, I suppose the largest single group of importance is the cathedrals. Um, the medieval cathedrals, although none of them now has an intact medieval library, nevertheless, for the most part, have post-Reformation libraries, some of them of great importance, like Lincoln and Hereford. Um, now, they receive no public funding at all, except occasionally they can get grants for specific purposes, like cataloguing or conservation, um, which are channeled to them through the British Library's Research and Development Department, again, central government funding. So... Um, in the 40-odd university libraries, um, perhaps for these purposes, 200 public libraries, um, a couple of dozen cathedrals, and maybe 50 miscellaneous institutions like the Inns of Court, um, some of the theological colleges which are not affiliated to universities, places of that kind, we have the bulk of the country's rare book resources. These collections, and I'll concentrate now on the university libraries and um, by implication also on the British Library, on the National Library, are in many cases not consciously developed collections. And this explains a lot, I think, about why um, the approach to rare books in Britain is in many ways very different from the approach to rare books in this country. Libraries like the Bodleian or the British Library or Cambridge um, are essentially libraries which just growed. Nobody thought them out. Um, they don't 
depend in the sense that um, so many libraries in this country depend on a single large benefaction around which an institution has been built and developed. They are um, the consequence of organic and often um, undirected rather than ill-directed growth. I don't know of a library in the United States, although I no doubt 20 people will stand up and tell me there is one, of which the same kind of thing could be said. I suppose the Library of Congress would have to be the nearest um, comparison in the sense that it is receiving a vast amount of material. Um, but the sort of libra the libraries I'm thinking of have maybe 150 to 200 years start on the Library of Congress and in that sense simply have more books which in the normally understood sense of the word will be regarded as rare or special. For centuries, there was no distinction, therefore, between books and rare books. And it's a distinction which I still see as essentially false. Um, of course, some books are rare, some books are valuable, some books are um, physically um, in need of care and protection. But age and rarity and physical condition do not seem to me to make a book essentially different from a book which is common, um, easy to acquire, and in good physical condition. They are there essentially um, on the assumption that either they are useful now or that they have a potential use in the future. Because the collections have developed organically, um, the idea of rare books or special collections as something different is in fact a very late development in the United Kingdom. Um, the very phrases I think we have essentially imported from the United States, the concept I think we've imported from the United States in very recent years. The Department of Rare Books at Cambridge University Library was established in 1972. That was not when Cambridge began to collect rare books. Um, the Department of Special Collections at the Bodleian was 1975 or 76. The British Library had nothing called a rare book department until it became the British Library. Um, when it was the British Museum, uh, it was called something like Antiquarian and Bibliographical Acquisitions and Queries. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something along those lines. Um, the idea that it was something special and different then in an administrative sense, is a comparatively late growth. Um, this has not entirely had good effects, and I'm, sure, I'm personally convinced that one reason why the physical condition of so many of the books in our libraries is so appalling is precisely because they haven't had the special treatment, because, precisely because they haven't been treated as something different. We've allowed people to use them. Um, the good effect, though, and I think it's, 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 it's very important, is that there isn't a distancing. There are no great steel doors. There are no laser beam security devices to keep people out. Um, books are books. And whether a book was printed in 1680 or 1980 is 
largely irrelevant. British scholars and British librarians are much more accustomed to, uh, in appropriate historical disciplines, are much more accustomed to handling early printed materials in the way in which they would handle modern materials. In other words, not as objects, but as information sources. Um, there has then, if you like, been a degree of accessibility of this material, which has certainly had, um, in some cases, disastrous consequences, and in many cases, certainly unfortunate consequences for the physical condition of the books. But on the other hand, it has made British librarians and scholars much more aware of the potential value of early printed book collections. And this seems to me to be a matter of the utmost importance in um, a situation in which, as I said earlier, we are to so great an extent dependent on public funding for the continued, certainly, development of these collections. I don't think anyone's proposed, ever proposed selling one off. Um, but the development of them, the proper staffing of them, this depends on the kind of goodwill which essentially develops out of familiarity and the feeling of usefulness. That, I think and hope and believe, we have. Where does this leave the librarian? He is still a curator. I think um, one could argue, and I think argue cogently, that his primary duty is custodial. That he is essentially a transmitter, um, that he is a preserver. But this gets somehow enmeshed in a fallacy. There is this concept that sometime in the distant future, some great scholar is going to come along who is going to make use of all this carefully preserved material and that at that point the whole exercise will suddenly be justified. The librarian, it seems to me, can never neglect the possibility, remote as it may seem, that the man who has just walked in through the door is that very person for whom all this material has been so carefully preserved. So however important curatorship may be, it seems to me that what I would call the normal functions of the librarian are just as important. That um, the librarian should not be sitting on a dead collection of materials, um, a collection of materials to which access is permitted only under the most stringent conditions. That he should be in there developing it, making it available in any way which is consistent with its continued preservation. So the curator, it seems to me, is more than a curator. He is not um, passively sitting there watching it, which is what the word curator, um, custodian, implies to me. He is active in two ways. He is active in developing it, and that doesn't necessarily mean only by acquisition, although acquisition clearly is an important part of the exercise. But he is also active in conserving it. He is active in ensuring that the materials are um, not only available now, 
but will continue to be available and he is taking the steps which will make that continued availability possible. Now with three distinguished conservators in the room I don't really pursue that question much further and obviously you're going to hear more about it next week but it seems to me that that is um, that the development of conservation and the increased emphasis that has been placed on conservation in the last few years in a sense is a natural reaction to the way in which collections have been used and indeed overused. So I see the librarian as a curator but as a curator who is um, actively concerned to develop the collection and actively concerned to preserve it for use and use is the key to the whole exercise. The librarian's job, as I understand it, is that he is a purveyor of information, that he is essentially a, a transmitter, um, an opener of doors, if you like, that he is not himself doing research on behalf of his users, but that he is making um, making it possible for his users to conduct that research intelligently for themselves. Um, the librarian is an expert in nothing, but he knows a great deal about many things. He is... Um, the librarian is the man who always knows the answer. And anyone, and I guess some of you have, who've ever worked on a public service desk in a library, know that everything from how was the Gutenberg Bible printer to where is the men's room are the sort of questions you're going to be confronted with and you're expected to know the answer but at the, at the center of the job is directing people to the information which they require not providing it for them showing them how to get it now again any of you who've worked on a public service point in a library also know that very few users ever ask the right question <coughs> and almost none of them actually ask the question to which they really want an answer. Um, it's so often approached in a peripheral, snaky sort of way. Um, one could speculate on why, but perhaps it's not appropriate. Um, in other words, the librarian needs to be um, an expert on the materials in his care um, so that they can be properly exploited. He is the only person who has the opportunity to gain the knowledge which is necessary for the full exploitation of a collection of anything. Now, it seems to me that in essence, um, the rare book librarian is no different in this respect from any other librarian. It's just that the, if there is a difference, it arises out of the kind of knowledge he can reasonably be expected to have. It arises, therefore, out of the nature of the materials in his, con in his care. Now, you'll notice that I've so far offered no definition of special collections or rare books. And that is a quite conscious omission. As you all know, certain parameters are normally chosen and the litany goes something like all books printed before 1800 um, modern limited editions books in fine bindings and other books considered to be rare and valuable for some special reason and it goes something along those lines in almost every library in the world 
Um, obviously, I would accept that as, a, as a, a, a rough guide, but I don't think we can take it as any more than a very rough guide. Um, the librarian in charge of a rare book collection is essentially a man who needs to know what that collection may have to offer to potential users, who has got to um, concern himself in some way with getting the information to the user who needs it, which can be quite remarkably difficult. But nevertheless, um, all that said, the fact remains that most um, rare book collections are in practice collections of older books. And here we come to an area which I think um, certainly engages us with the very special skills which ought to be associated with the rare book librarian, the kind of expertise which the user, the potential user, could expect the rare book librarian to have. To be an expert on the materials, to be an expert on the books themselves. Now, this means essentially, I suppose, that he ought to be a competent historical bibliographer. But I wouldn't want to overemphasize that point. Um, I think it may well be the case that um, we have tended to neglect the content of rare book collections at the expense of the form. That we have seen them essentially as collections of things rather than as collections of information. Now that there is a case for collection of things I will come back to later. But at the core of it, of any argument arg uh, to make the case that these things are worthwhile is the argument that they are worthwhile because of what they contain in addition to or as well as or even instead of what they are. So in that sense, I would argue that although um, a knowledge of historical bibliography is certainly one of the distinguishing features of the rare book librarian, that neither um, excuses other librarians from knowing something about it, nor means that the rare book librarian has achieved the be-all and end-all of professional skills simply by having read a few basic textbooks in bibliography and done a few simple exercises in library school. Um, what the rare book librarian is really an expert in is the collection. The collection itself as an entity, as a potential research tool. And his job centers around making that research tool available to researchers now. Um, this is why it seems to me that projects like the 18th century STC, whatever one may think of its methodology, the um, conceptual um, thinking which went into the making of the 18th century STC seems to me to be of the utmost importance because it is vastly increasing the availability of materials. Um, many other or some other large-scale projects which have become possible using um, automated systems are of perhaps not comparable importance in general terms, but certainly of importance 
in making much more available than has ever been available in the past in terms of the contents of collections. And I would single out for mention here the project for historical biobibliography based at Newcastle University, which, um, among a good deal of nonsense, is having the effect of making available a wide range of information, not only about books, but about the contents of books and the writers of books, um, about the way in which books were published, distributed, circulated. Now, that kind of thing, that is, that is real hard information of use to um, historians in the broadest sense in a great range of, of, of disciplines in the humanities and the social sciences. So, the rare book librarian, I would argue, is essentially an expert on his collection. He is an information provider. He is the channel, the only possible ch effective channel between user and object used. The educational implications of that I'll come back to shortly. But before I do that, I want to take up one other point which I mentioned in passing. The general argument which one's heard so and read so often that um, rare books ought to be preserved because they exist, because they're transmitters of culture, um, that because they are, they must be good, um, seems, uh, seems to me if we get away from that rather simplistic version of the argument, to have a grain of truth in it which is important, but important in a slightly different sense. I said a few moments ago that uh, rare book librarians have tended to concentrate on the book as object. Now, I think um, one can justify that. One can see the library, to, in some senses, as a museum. Um, by museum, I do not mean um, a place with cases or pictures or whatever it might be where you go and look. What I mean is um, a museum in the sense that it contains objects which are preserved for their value as objects. Um, this value may be purely aesthetic. It may be a fine binding. It may be a fine specimen of typography. It may be... Um, something much simpler than that. It may be that um, it's of interest not because it's unusual, but because it's commonplace. Um, you get, if you go into any great library in the world, they can produce their Grolier bindings and their Payne bindings, but you go and ask them if you can see a late 18th century trade binding, please, and you will soon find that they are in considerable difficulty from which it follows that it's not only the exceptional which is worthy of preservation as an object. The normal is equally worthy, and as, as any historian knows, the facts about the past which we do not know are the ones which were so commonplace at the time that nobody ever thought it worthwhile to write them down. Um, as my dissertation advisor once said to me, um, in any piece of historical research, what you're doing is finding out what somebody once knew. And it's finding out that kind of information, the, one, the formerly commonplace information, 
which can be so difficult. And the same is true with objects. Um, one could go into, I would guess, three or four museums in this town and see, um, shall we say, um, Italian Renaissance or 17th century French furniture. What you could do with what would be much more difficult, perhaps not in New York, because nothing like that's difficult in New York. I suppose you can find everything somewhere if you really try hard enough. Um, what would be more difficult in most places would be to go and find, let us say, a specimen of a dining chair made in 1945 out of orange boxes at the time of austerity after the Second World War. It's the commonplace which becomes uncommon. It's just as true of books as it is of facts or furniture or anything else. So when we think about the library as a museum, the library as a collection of objects of interest because of their physical nature, it seems to me that we ought to bear in mind that we are not only talking about the obviously spectacular. We are also, and um, just as importantly, talking about the, um, the normal. It's self-evident as soon as you think about it that most people in, shall we say, 18th century England did not have their books bound by Roger Payne. Um, but it's a matter of interest, and if you believe these things to be of importance, a matter of importance, to know in what, what they did look like. Um, there is more than a merely antiquarian interest in knowing how someone actually perceived physically perceived, let's say, the first edition of Tristram Shandy or the Lyrical Ballads. Um, it's not simply a romantic notion of holding the past in our hands. It's much more than that. Um, there is an intellectual um, element in that kind of perception of the past which can only be achieved through the objects themselves. No reproduction, um, no substitute will ever, can ever replace the reality, the original, for that purpose. So, um, the rare book librarian then is, although an information provider, also a preserver of objects because the objects themselves as objects are information providers. They provide us with information about the physical form of the past. The concomitant of that is that the library itself is becoming a kind of historical document. Um, if you've followed my argument so far, um, I am effectively saying that the objects worthy of preservation are not only the exceptional objects, they are all objects. Now, on that basis, the whole collection, the whole rare book collection, is um, an object worthy of preservation. That the library has become, if you like, as I said a moment ago, a historical document, a research entity. Um, and not only in the area, although this is the most obvious one, of library history. Um, library history I will say in passing, seems to me to be a very important subject. Um, I think it's a very great pity that it tends to be pursued as a rather specialized discipline. It seems to me that library history has 
a broad range of implications about cultural history in general, which library historians have barely touched upon. And because it's so specialized, um, general historians have not touched upon either. Um, library history is an important subject, and a collection in situ and in toto represents um, a library history in the round. It's a kind of historical evidence which so few historians have the good fortune to have. Um, I once went to an industrial museum um, in a village called Ironbridge, which is where the first um, industrial iron smelting process was set up. And as it happened, I was there with a party of people, which included a very distinguished historian who, as we were coming out, said to me, you know, I've been writing for 40 years about the Industrial Revolution, and this is the first time I had any idea what it actually looked like. Now, knowing what it looked like seems to me to be important. And the library historian has the unique opportunity to know what it looks like. This seems to me to apply very particularly um, to certain kinds of libraries which have been preserved um, on quite a wide scale in the United Kingdom and for various reasons perhaps on a rather lesser scale in continental Europe where um, the collection is embedded in a building or an institution with which it is intimately associated. Now the most obvious example here are our cathedral libraries. Um, for example at Lincoln Cathedral the basis of the library is a collection of, I suppose, five to 6,000 books, um, mainly 16th century French, which were given to the library by a dean of the cathedral just after the restoration, perhaps 1668, 69. Um, he then wrote to some friends in Oxford and asked if they could recommend anybody to build a building in which these books might be housed and the friend in Oxford wrote back and said, well, there's this up-and-coming up chap called Wren. Uh, we've just got him to do a couple of jobs for us. He may be able to build a library for you, which indeed he did. Um, Dean Honeywood's books are still sitting in Wren's library on the shelves that were specially designed to fit them. Now, um, Lincoln is a very small town. It has no university. The nearest university is, I suppose, 50 miles away over rather indifferent roads. Um, by no stretch of the imagination is it is a vibrant center of intellectual activity. It seems to me that to move those books from that building would be little short of criminal. Um, as it happens, some of the books in that collection are um, of some importance in the sense that um, they do represent, in some cases, the only copies known in the United Kingdom, because I said there were 16th century French books. And as it happens, it was that particular part of the British Museum's collections which suffered most when the museum was bombed. So in that sense, some of the books are of some importance. Um, but most of them are, frankly, rather dull. Taken individually, um, there are probably no more than a few dozen books in the whole of that library, which one would select out as being of interest either in terms of content or of form or of rarity. Together, they represent a unique historical document, a collection which was assembled by a man about whom a good deal is known, 
which was assembled, in fact, while he was in exile on the continent during the Civil War, which he brought back to England with him at the Restoration. Um, the Lincoln example is, I would almost say, typical of our cathedrals. Most of our cathedrals, in fact, have libraries with a very similar history. Um, a collection as the basis, perhaps built upon, perhaps not. Um, I pick out Lincoln because it happens to have a, a building about whose preservation I think no one would argue. Now, this is not to argue that collections should never be broken up, should never be recirculated. Um, after all, there would be no rare book libraries on this side of the Atlantic if that argument had been followed through. It seems to me that the circulation of books, and as all the way through for books, read, archives, stroke, manuscripts as well, is um, more than a purely commercial transaction. It's more than an opportunity for um, prestige uh, collecting by remote Midwestern junior colleges. It is um, a very real part of the ebb and flow of scholarship. That the transference of material from where it can't be used, where it won't be used, where it has no particular historical justification, to where it can and will be looked after and used and developed seems to me to be far more important than any remote emotional attachment to keeping books where they are simply because they are there. As I say, in individual cases, and I've cited one at some length, one could certainly make a very strong argument, which even our Committee on the Exports of Works of Art might accept, that those books should not be moved. In many cases, I think such a case cannot be made. And I, um, during the years I was working at the Bodleian, this kind of thing came up time and time again. Um, the, Most the Lord Mostyn's library sold by Christie's three or four years ago. There was a row about that. Um, there have been many controversies about individual manuscripts, collections of archives, individual books. Um, in some cases, indeed, a large amount of public money has been put into keeping the books in the United Kingdom. Of all the um, arguments that I can remember along these lines over the last ten years, the only one with which I felt any sympathy was in fact the Evelyn Library, which did seem to me to have this property of being a historical document in itself, in a way that so many of these other collections were not. Um, a lot of material that is so, has, which has been um, peripheral to the purpose of a collection, and it seems to me that in that case um, it is not only justified to do it, one might almost say it's a moral obligation to put it somewhere else where it really fits in. So the argument that the library is an entity, that the library is a kind of research document, is not, it seems to me, a blanket argument. It's an argument which has to be um, put forward in each case with considerable care. Um, it's an argument which simply cannot be applied across the board. Now, um, let me finally, since the, the tape recorder is the best hinter of time I've ever come across, um, the, finally, 
let me come really to the heart of the first part of the title anyway, the future of the past. I think um, the essence of my views will be fairly clear by now, that I see the rare book collection as um, integrated within a larger institution, that I see its custodian as essentially a librarian who is, doesn't really differ in any serious way um, in his activities from the activities of any of his colleagues, certainly not in any serious way from the activities, say, of a, of a reference librarian. Um, of course the books require some special physical care. Um, there is an ideal world somewhere of perfect book stacks at constant temperatures and humidities. It's an ideal world which most of us haven't got and never will have. Um, of course, in ideal worlds there are all sorts of things, uh, ways in which these books ought to be specially looked after, ought to be treated as different. Um, the library is also, as well as being um, a cared for, developed, conserved information provider, it is also, in some circumstances, um, a kind of historical document in itself. And I, it seems to me that um, these um, considerations, if you um, will accept what I've been saying, lead us on to a, a rather different concept of the role of the rare book librarian and hence of the way in which rare book librarians should be trained and educated. Traditionally, as I said before, the rare book librarian was a historical bibliographer. Um, he was essentially an expert on books, not on the contents of books, just on books. And indeed, a lot of the pioneering work in historical bibliography has been done by librarians. And if one looks at the pioneer generation of bibliographers, um, Pollard, Gregg, Bradshaw, Proctor, it's quite astonishing to see how many of them receive their basic training in libraries. And indeed, the same is still in some respects largely true, that it's certainly the best way to handle a prodigious number of books in a short space of time is to work as a rare books librarian. Um, but you know, historical bibliography has been moving further and further away from the library. It moved, first of all, I think, into the English department, um, and it's now taking another trip around the campus on its way to the history department. Um, I think it's almost arrived there, at least it's battering fairly heavily on the doors in many universities. And that is changing the nature of the demands which are being made on the rare book librarian. Um, the historian who is pursuing what I've ad nauseam called the history of the book um, is looking to early books to provide something rather different from what is expected by the bibliographical editor of a literary text, for example, or by the historical bibliographer, pure and simple. Um, the, his the historian pursuing rare books um, is coming much closer to an ideal which was once enunciated by no less than Freds and Bowers, that bibliography is a good servant but a bad master. Um, that master-servant relationship has not always been obvious 
um, in some literary bibliographical investigations, and I think it's always been quite clear in the best of them, um, but not always perhaps at the uh, lower levels. The historian approaching a rare book collection is looking for two things. He's looking, first of all, for um, information. When I spent a year in Cambridge, the three most regular users of the rare books room in the university library were all historians of science. And they did not give a fig whether what they were reading was printed in 1632 on handmade paper in some particular font of type or whether it was a Xerox that had been run off from a microfilm. To them, form was of the utmost unimportance. It was content that matters. And as more historians become aware of the evidential value of early printed books, that early printed books have a comparable authority and lack of authority with manuscripts and archives, then the rare book librarian is going to be confronted more and more by the user of content rather than the user of form. Secondly, there are much um, smaller group of historians who are concerned with the broader, the broad sphere of, um, I almost said the printing press as an agent of change, um, the role of the book in society, the way in which information has been disseminated through society. Um, I think despite its pedigree in the writings of Marshall McLuhan, this is uh, an important and vastly neglected topic. And here again, the rare book librarian is a key figure. He is providing access to what is in effect the primary research material, in this case, both in terms of form and in terms of content. The educational implications seem to me to be two. One is that it would be the utmost folly to neglect to educate the next generation of librarians in at least some basic way about these great collections of research material which are embedded in their libraries. It seems to me to be at least as important for every librarian to have some understanding of the historical scope of books, of libraries, and indeed of his own profession as it is to be able to manipulate the wonders of AAC2 uh, and MARC formatting. Secondly, it implies certainly the need for specialists. Um, it implies that out of the great numbers of young people who, for whatever reason, choose librarianship as a profession, there are, and one hopes will continue to be, some whose primary interests are in historical matters, in rare books, archives, whatever. Um, it's already quite clear, I think, that at library schools, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, there is a sad falling off of the number of historical courses on offer, um, and also a falling off of enrollment in many institutions um, for those which are on offer. If you offer something that isn't very good, nobody's going to buy it. Take the job seriously, and it is not difficult to attract not merely students, but good students and the best students to study historical um, 
librarianship, and that's, that's a rather strange way of putting it. I mean librarianship concerned with materials of historical importance, which are in most cases themselves old. Um, and that is the point at which I propose to end, because that is really the essence of the problem which confronts us. The future of the past, by which I mean the continued preservation, the continued availability of these vast accumulations or these consciously uh, developed collections, whichever they may be, depends on the quality of their custodians, both now and in the future. And that quality can only be ensured, first of all, by educating the custodians in the right way, and secondly, by ensuring that there is a sufficient and sufficiently widespread understanding of what these collections are, what these libraries are, and why in reality they are important to um, ensure the continued flow into them of funds, whether those funds come from public sources or from private. Thank you. As I think everybody here knows, or almost everybody, it's our custom to continue our deliberations over a glass of wine and fig bars in uh, 502 Butler Library, uh, to which we will now adjourn. Very slowly at first until we get the things opened, and then very rapidly, those of you who have a tendency to linger. Thank you very much for coming. That's 502, just follow the crowd.